Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, May 17th, we're studying Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In today's text, Jesus gives the fifth of seven letters that John is to write to the congregations in Asia Minor. The letter we're looking at today is addressed to the angel of the church in Sardis. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have this regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be with you again. So we get started today, Pastor Vandercook. Let's talk a little bit about the book of Revelation as a whole. How should we approach it as Christians? Why is it a valuable book to us in the church? Yeah, I think sometimes, um, at least as far as uh, pastors go, it's not the first one we want to tackle necessarily whenever we're uh, dealing with our people. But uh, uh, but obviously, it is a, it is a rather popular one, uh, and I use that word popular just because it's one that people like to they like to ask questions about. Um, they're curious about, uh, and unfortunately, it's also one that gets twisted around quite a bit um, as it's as it's approached from various corners of Christianity. Uh, I think always the important thing about going into Revelation is making sure that you have your Christology correct whenever you start approaching it at all, uh, because if you don't understand what the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus mean for um, what what that means for for the people of God, then you're not going to understand Revelation properly uh, because you're going to come away from that. Uh, additionally, you know, you always have to understand too that Revelation is 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 apocalyptic literature, uh, and so a lot of the symbolism that we're approaching in the Book of Revelation is was never intended to be interpreted in a literal sense. Uh, just as just just as is common with all apocalyptic literature, the other apocalyptic literature that's in the Bible, but also extra biblical apocalyptic literature is of that same nature as well. Um, and obviously one of the one of the big things that is sometimes mistakes that would be made when reading the book of Revelation as a whole um, is that one might view it as a as a linear timeline as this is just one series of events one after another uh, versus um, really what it is is kind of a series of seven visions that kind of repeat a lot of the same themes and so forth um, as you go through the book. So with some of those thoughts out there, what are, what's the benefit of, of Revelation then with some of those like, hey, I don't know if I want to study this one first with you guys as, as the new pastor. <laughs> sure. What, what's the benefit of it? Well, I, you know, the fact is that it is an incredibly comforting book as you look at it. I mean, you have, uh, you have so, some great words of comfort that we come from it. I mean, one of the ones that's really common is we're, we're in the Easter season right now is, you know, a lot of our churches sing um, this is the feast as our, our hymn of praise, you know, from divine service setting one, this is the feast of victory, uh, for our God. Um, the lamb who was slain has begun his reign and so forth. I mean, it's, it's, uh, 
It's a beautiful hymn that we sing during the season of Easter uh, that reminds us of the victory that Christ Jesus has won over death uh, for us. And that is obviously kind of really the central message of Revelation is that Jesus has won the victory for us. Uh, He has defeated sin, death, and the devil for us. And that comes through loud and clear throughout the book of Revelation. So there's, there's obviously a lot of comfort in there. And I think that's probably the mistake that's made with Revelation is that it's read with fear where it shouldn't be feared. It really should be read for, look at the great promises that come uh, through Christ and his victory won uh, on the cross and, um, and, and the victory that is proclaimed in his resurrection for us there. And that can get lost real easily if we get bogged down into the details of um, you know, all the various visions that we see uh, in the book, rather than looking at the, the central message of Christ and him crucified. Yeah, it is It is supremely a book of comfort, and that's what we've been seeing so far, and we will continue to see as we read it. So we're starting Revelation chapter 3. We're in the midst of these seven letters that Jesus has John write to various churches. What should we know about context so far? We haven't really started, quote, the action yet. We're still in this section of epistles. What should we know about context so far leading up to, to what we're going to read today? Yeah, well, you have these seven letters that are written to the seven churches in Asia, and uh, if you look at a map, they're not terribly far apart from each other, at least not in our, you know, what we would consider in our American context of things being far apart. Um, but uh, you have these these ancient churches in Asia, modern-day Turkey, I suppose you could, you could say. Uh, and, you know, I think the temptation always with letters, and we do see Scripture twisted this way sometimes, is that if you end up with a letter that's written to a certain church, one might assume, well, this this is only applicable for that particular church in that particular situation. So, you know, I think this is ballied about quite a bit with um, with Paul's letters, you know, that, oh, you know, that, that prohibition that he wrote in that letter, that only applied to that situation or that person to that church. It wasn't really designed for, they had this, that problem there. We don't have that problem, therefore we don't have to pay attention to that. But really the letters are meant to be universal applied to uh, across the board here. So while we might have some very specific situations that are being addressed at these various churches, there's no doubt that we can find those same situations um, on some level in pretty much any church that we encounter or any congregation that we encounter even today. Uh, So the fact is that these are part of the sacred scriptures, and so they really are applicable to all of us. Well, and I think just the way that the book of Revelation is written goes to show that each letter is not just intended for that one congregation, that what's happening in that one congregation may have been the reason that it was written, but just the way that the book of Revelation would have been given to all of these seven churches or circulated among them, we've talked briefly about that, is an indication that, well, what Jesus had written to the church in Sardis, it was also read in Thyatira and Ephesus and the other cities, so that Yes, there was something specific in that congregation that occasioned the letter, but everyone in these churches got to read it, and so we still in the church are right to read it and take it to heart. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as, as we get into the letter, we'll see that, the again, yeah, the situation that's here, you're going to find it in the other churches, too. It's just that uh, perhaps the character or it's particularly a big problem at this church, you know, uh, you know, you know, I think that as, as pastors of, you know, especially as we might serve in different congregations over the term of, of our being pastors in the church, 
we might come across the same problem at every church, the same list of problems or, or things that need to be addressed at, at every church that we serve. But some churches have bigger problems in other areas than, than this church has. You know, this, this church has, you know, issues with this thing. That church also has issues with this thing, but not quite as bad as this one. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, they're, they're, they're applicable across the board, and, and, and we ought to use them that way as well. Let's go ahead and read this letter. This is, again, Revelation chapter 3, beginning at the first verse. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the, bl- out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is our text, Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6, the letter to the church in Sardis. Pastor Vanderkirk, as the other letters are addressed, so this one is to the angel of the church. And we've talked about this, but I think it's it's worth a, at least a brief mention every time. Who's the angel? What do you think? Yeah, there's kind of three different approaches, it seems, to this answer to answer this question of who is this angel here. You know, we should note, of course, that the word angel um, simply means messenger, um, and, and depending on context, it can mean just a human messenger or like the heavenly being angel, which is probably where our mind is going to go most of the time. Um, and that certainly uh, is both of those types of interpretations are 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 could be an answer to this here. Um, uh, it seems that the word angel is used almost exclusively in the book of Revelation to refer to the heavenly being angel. Uh, and so that that gives a little bit of credence to the idea that here we're not talking about uh, a human messenger, but rather we are actually talking about an angelic being. Uh, some others have said that maybe that um, uh, these beings are symbolic, that they represent the prevailing spirit that's present at each church or something to that effect. Uh, but really, probably the two possibilities we have here, and I don't think it's necessarily terribly important that we, you know, firmly press either one of them. But it is either probably the pastor or the bishop of that church that's being spoken to here, the lead, the you know, the human, uh, the human leader of the church, or it's it's an angelic being that is sent to give this message to the church. Um, but uh, one way or another. Uh, God wants his messengers to deliver this message to the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, most of the, the pastors we've had so far have kind of leaned toward, and this is where I tend to lean, that the angels of these churches are the human messengers, pastors, or bishops. Although it, it did strike me as I was reading this particular letter in verse 5, where Jesus says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels— those angels, I would imagine, and we can talk about this when we get there, but I would imagine those angels are the heavenly beings, such that within the context of one letter, perhaps you have two different uses uh, of the way that it, it refers to, or or as you said, like 
generally speaking, an angel in the book of Revelation is the heavenly being. Mm-hmm. This context, though, I mean, I, I just want to—I I keep wanting to read them as human pastors, but like you said, it could be the heavenly messengers, I suppose. Yeah, and I'll be honest, before I started to really dig into this text uh, in preparation for today, uh, that's that's kind of how I looked at it, too, always, is just exclusively of, oh, we're probably talking about pastors here. And in fact, you know, if you pick up a Lutheran study Bible, you'll find that that's kind of the, what the note tends to lead toward. Well, it's the note way back in chapter one, where it's first brought up, where the term is first brought up. Uh, but, it, but you know, as, as I read some of the other commentators on it, where they make the case of, well, in in the book of Revelation, just kind of in the greater context of the book, it's used this way. And say, well, maybe it's that one too. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, it, it really probably could go either way on that. Um, but uh, but probably the the main thing to take from this is the message itself, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And Jesus wants that message to get to this church, so he gives it to a messenger so that it is delivered. This letter is particularly to the church in Sardis. Talk a little bit about that context, the city of Sardis. Anything we should know about the context there that'll help us? Yeah, Sardis um, was once a really important city, in fact. Uh, ancient capital of the Kingdom of Lydia, which admittedly I know very little about, but uh, the Kingdom of Lydia, um, and became the seat of the Persian governor of that area during the Persian Empire. So pretty significant town there um, in, in Asia at that time. However, their prominence, you know, waned over time, if you will. Uh, you know, like I was when I was when I was putting together my thoughts for this this study, I was thinking of some of the cycling races that I watch on TV, and they'll, you know, over in Europe, they'll they'll ride past the ruins of this ancient castle or something like that, and you can look at that ancient castle. It's still a pretty impressive looking structure, but you know what what is that castle do anymore? It really doesn't do anything. It's just there on the side of the road, and it's pretty to look at, I guess, but really it's just a shell of what was once there. Uh, it's not really a significant place anymore, other than the fact of maybe its historical value. And that's kind of what you have with Sardis here. Uh, Sardis was once a great city, but now they are just kind of an empty shell of what they once were. Uh, when the Greek Empire gained control of that area, they saw it as a valuable city to have control over. But by the time we get to the first century, um, it's not it's not really anything of significance anymore as far as the uh, um, as being a powerful city anymore. It's, it's a shell of what it once was, really. Well, and I, I, I do think that does have some application as we go forward, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know if it's intentional, but I think we can draw some connections. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what I was thinking. Like that sounds a lot like what Jesus is going to say <laughs> to this church. So let's we'll keep that in mind. Now, Jesus in each of these epistles, he identifies himself in a different way. Here he he says the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So what is Jesus saying about himself in this identification there in verse 1? Yeah, the seven spirits there really ties Jesus in with the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, a picture of the of Trinitarian theology here that uh, Jesus and the Spirit are uh, both fully God. Uh, there, are, there are not two gods or three gods, but one God, uh, you know, to quote, or paraphrase a portion of the Athanasian Creed. Uh, but, you know, when you have this tie-in with Jesus of the Holy Spirit, you first of all have the fact that Jesus is the— um, uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit have a close relationship with one another, and also the reminder that the Spirit of God does, the Holy Spirit does proceed from the Son as well as from the Father. 
Uh, and, you know, if you want an example of that, I mean, John chapter 20, where Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit, where he, um, you know, bestows upon them the office of the keys there. Uh, you have you have various uh, pictures, obviously, of where the Spirit actually is proceeding from the Son. So uh, Jesus is linked up with the Holy Spirit very tightly with that statement there. Okay, so there's the the seven spirits. This would be a reference to the Holy Spirit. We talked a little bit about that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. You have that same identification, the seven spirits identified with the Holy Spirit. What about the seven stars? Yeah, the seven stars, uh, and I believe that this appeared back at the letter of the church at Ephesus as well, I think, unless I've got that mixed up with the seven spirits. But uh, The seven uh, stars are also in the church to Ephesus. Yes. Yeah, right, right. So there at the, you know, he has that, that similar thing. The stars here are probably representative of the seven churches that are being written to. So the fact that Jesus holds these churches in his hands, uh, but the fact that he holds those churches in his hands also indicates the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is, um, is, is there protecting his church, caring for his church, continuing to nurture his church. You know, it's the fulfillment of uh, what, we, what we find in Matthew 28, where Jesus says he'll be with us always to the end of the age. Uh, and so we have the fact that Jesus holds the churches in his hands there uh, in, the, in that, that statement of uh, holding the seven stars. Well, and, and in Revelation 1, verse 20, when John first sees the risen Christ, Jesus even identifies the stars also with the angels of the seven churches. So not only the, the churches are in his hands, but the, their angels, their pastors, every, again, their messengers are also in their hands. Thinking about the way that Jesus identifies himself here as having the Holy Spirit and the pastors, the angels within his, in his grasp, is, is, do you think there's a reason for this identification to the church in Sardis? Uh, and here's kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking, especially with the, Jesus being the one who has the Holy Spirit, who gives the Holy Spirit. This is a church that, as Jesus will say, is, is dead. And the Holy Spirit is the one who I mean, Jesus breathes on his disciples with the Holy Spirit and sends them to forgive sins, or the, the vision from Ezekiel, where the, the Spirit is breathed upon those slain and they live. It, it strikes me as that's a, a message that Sardis needs to hear. Yeah, I, I hadn't made that connection, but no, that's, that's great. That's fantastic, because yeah, when we have the Valley of Dry Bones, that's exactly what happens is the, you know, the, the breathing of the Spirit and bringing life back to the dry bones that uh, for us in the in the uh, in the one-year lectionary, that's our, our reading for the first Sunday after Easter all every year, where we encounter the Valley of Dry Bones. But also, and that the tie-in that that I like to make with that with Jesus' encounter, because the gospel reading for that same Sunday is uh, is you know the account of doubting Thomas. But when Jesus comes into the uh, upper room, it's a it is a room that's filled with death because they believe that Jesus is still dead. Uh, and in breathing the Holy Spirit, he gives life. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's a beautiful tie in third article of the Apostles Creed with that, obviously, with, um, you know, uh, that we cannot by our own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ our Lord or come to him because in Ephesians chapter 2, St. Paul writes that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. And so, uh, into that deadness, we have Jesus breathing life. So, yeah, I think that's a fantastic connection. Yeah, well, and even all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, where the Lord first mm. gives life to Adam, he breathes into him his spirit, that, that breath of life. 
and so the the recreation of of man, the the raising from the death of sin, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus is going to send. So even, I guess, even as we're going to hear words that are probably the harshest words we've heard so far from the Lord, at least in their totality of the letter, yet within the way that he identifies himself at the very outset, there is hope, there is there's gospel there for these people that if they will keep their trust in Christ as the one who has the Spirit, there is there is the opportunity for life yet again. Yeah, that's good, because the hammer of God's law is coming right after this, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I mean, again, I, as you read this this letter as a whole, at least, the, the words here, I think, are, are the harshest we've heard from Jesus so far. I, I didn't catch... I don't know, maybe there is a little bit of commendation here. In verse 4, there's some commendation. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's primarily critique. So in verse 1 still, Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is how Jesus starts his his address. Help us to hear his words. Yeah, and I think this is where perhaps we can at least make a little bit of a tie-in to uh, the history of the city of Sardis uh, that we talked about earlier. You know, they have this reputation of being this this uh, this very powerful city, uh, but really that's not what they are anymore. Um, but at the same time here, the issue here is that we have uh, a city that prides itself, or I'm sorry, not a city. Now we're talking about the church of Sardis. Uh, we have a church that prides itself in uh, doing uh, good works, but there is apparently no faith behind these works at all, and that's the part that's dead. It's almost kind of the inverse of what we find in in James, where he speaks of faith without works is dead. Here it seems that we have works without faith, which is, well, also dead, uh, just in a different way. Hmm. I mean, so is this is this akin to what Jesus says to the Pharisees in the Gospels, where he will talk about, you know, your your lips say these things, but your hearts are far from me. So, or, or outwardly you're doing all these things, but inwardly you're a whitewashed tomb. Is that the mm-hmm. situation in Sardis? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking too, is the whitewashed tomb. And then also just some of the things that, uh, you know, that Isaiah has uh, in in the book of Isaiah, we find in 60, chapter 64, are, are, that our deeds are like a polluted garment, um, you know, or that, uh, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, which I, which is what Jesus, I believe, quotes whenever he's has that encounter with the Pharisees about the whitewashed tomb. I may have those things mixed up a little bit, but I'm pretty sure that's where that comes up for, for Jesus as he addresses the Pharisees as well. So, I mean, how, how does this happen? Where, where you have the reputation of being alive, your works look good, but inwardly you are dead. I mean, there's just not a ton of information here in the letter itself, but we've we've looked at other scriptural references. So how does how does this happen? Well, I think that the way that it it probably you know the things that kept coming to my mind as I'm as I'm thinking through this are some of the empty sacrifices that are made in the Old Testament that you know uh, lead up to the exile and so forth. The idea that well we you know how how can you say you know as, as the prophets are warning the people. You know, I think of Jeremiah in particular right now. We had a reading from, our, our Old Testament reading was from Lamentations this past Sunday. And, uh, you know, Jeremiah's here warning the people of the um, uh, the Babylonians coming to take them into captivity. And they're saying, well, how can you possibly uh, say that? Because we have, we have Jerusalem, we have the temple, we have all these things. And, and besides that, here we are performing our sacrifices just like we're supposed to and so forth. 
Uh, but the issue is that there's no faith behind those sacri- sacrifices. I think, I think man um, just almost by nature, uh, because of our fallen nature, we slip into works righteousness in that we think that because we have done this thing, therefore we deserve this thing. And that's how, that's how so, much, so much of the way that the world works, that we just assume that that's the way it ought to be with God too. And so it becomes kind of this mechanical type action where I've done my part, now God, you do your part. Kind of like Cain's sacrifice in uh, Genesis chapter four, where what does he do? Well, he prevents his sacrifice and then, well, surely I I presented my sacrifice, God will accept accept it and God will love me. But the fact is that there's no faith behind that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that it, it happens extremely commonly that we can slip into that because, uh, again, you know, the way, the way that everything else works in the world is that I do this thing and in response I get this thing in return, and that's not the way that it works with God. Hmm. I mean, so uh, what we're talking about here, works being there, but truly you are dead— this does become a matter of, of faith and right doctrine as it, as it comes down to it. I mean, you think about Jesus' conflicts with the Pharisees, it really was a matter of doctrine that he was disputing with them. They, they believed they were saved according to their good works, that their righteousness was something they could earn from God. Jesus said, no, that's not the way it works. Your righteousness comes from, from me alone. So, I mean, even as works are certainly in view here, it does become a matter of, of what is true and what is false. Yeah, well, and, and as we'll see as we, go, as we get into to verse 2 as well, we get, to talk, we get into talking about what makes good works complete. You know, uh, they're, they're incomplete whenever they lack, uh, you know, faith in Christ. Uh, they don't actually accomplish anything. So I think there's there's a lot for us to reflect on. We're going to keep looking at this letter on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor David Vandercook this morning about Revelation chapter 3. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, May 17th. We're studying Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 with Pastor David Vandercook. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus' opening statement here to the church in Sardis, where he says they have the reputation of being alive, but in fact they are dead. And we were talking a little bit over the break as to how you might diagnose something like that. I think you you brought up a good point in our conversation. I'd like you to explore a little bit more, that those who have the reputation of of being alive, that they, they know their works, and they know they've got a good reputation, sounds kind of like the goats to whom Jesus speaks in Matthew 25 when he talks about the last judgment. Talk, talk a little bit about that as to how we might 
diagnose something like what Jesus is talking about here in Revelation 3? Well, yeah, in Matthew 25, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, and to the sheep on his right, he tells them that, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick or in the prison or whatever, you visited me. Um, and the sheep on the right say, well, Lord, we never saw you do any of those things. But Jesus says, when you did these things to the least of, of these, you did it unto me. And then he says basically the opposite to the goats that are on his left. And they all say, well, we never saw all that happen. And while the goats don't, you know, go on to say this, I think that probably the way that the goats would, would continue on with that conversation is they would say, but look, look at all this other stuff that we did do. Doesn't that count for something? And it seems that that's kind of what the direction that a, a church that is dead but thinks they're alive would take, rather than, uh, you know, pointing to Christ and what he has done uh, and, and saying, you know, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Instead, they're looking at it and saying, well, yeah, you know, we, we're not perfect, but hey, look, we tried really hard. Isn't that good enough? You know, so we concentrate on the works that we're doing rather than on what Christ has done for us and taking it outside of ourselves. And so I think that a church that is dead but thinks they're alive uh, would turn this. You know, I occasionally talked, in fact, I think it was just yesterday in Bible class, I was making the point to my people there where I was saying, look, if we're reading the Bible looking for ways in which we can justify ourselves, we're not reading the Bible properly. Um, instead, probably our first thing every time we read a bit of law in the Bible is to repent. Uh, and and ask for God's forgiveness and seek the mercy of Christ because it's only by the mercy of Christ that anybody's saved anyway. It's only by the mercy of Christ that anybody is actually alive. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think that that's a fantastic point. Another, just to, to uh, as you were talking about Matthew twenty-five, it brought to mind another place where Jesus speaks. I think it's in it's in the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about those who who say to him, Lord, Lord, but won't actually enter the kingdom of heaven. And what they say to Jesus at that moment when they're left outside is they say, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, no, actually, you, you never knew me. I never knew you. So that it, they are pointing to their very works, thinking that they're alive, but in fact, they're not. And so, yeah, I think your, your advice to your Bible class is, is right on. Anytime we hear the law, as we're hearing it in Revelation 3, our response should be to repent. And, and there is hope for repentance within this very letter. So Jesus says to this church in verse 2, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Talk about Jesus' beginning call to repentance here. Yeah, obviously, you know, first of all, there is some hope here. Uh, that hope will become clearer as we go into the next verse. But the fact that there is the opportunity here to wake up, and to make works complete. Um, what is So obviously there's a chance here that the, that the course that they're on can be corrected. Uh, and so I guess the, the question that naturally comes is, well, how can, um, how can we make our works complete in the sight of God? Uh, and, you know, of course the answer is that no good work is truly a good work apart from Christ. He is the one who completes what we do. Um, you know, it's, it's not... Um, Unless it is sanctified, unless it is covered in the blood of Jesus, that work is, as, as again Isaiah puts it, a polluted garment, a filthy rag, um, but it is made complete in Christ. 
Mm. Okay, and so talk a little bit about this language of of waking up. This is language that Jesus uses, especially in his end times discourse toward the end of the Gospels. What what does that look like to wake up? Well, I think to be to wake up uh, would mean that. Um, well, I, th- I think you're. I think you're speaking of their waking up is going to be, uh, you know, actually finally come to the realization of what the Word of God is telling you, mm-hmm. and uh, repent. Uh, you know, turn turn from what you are doing, um, and turn toward God and His Word. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, and I guess maybe this is kind of the connection I was making, especially as we get into say verse three, where Jesus says, "If you won't wake up." I'll come like a thief, and you don't know oh. when that's going to happen. Like, I guess I, I want to make a connection there to the return of Christ, that, that this repentance is done in light of the fact that Christ is coming soon. Right, yeah, and uh, perhaps the, um, uh, yeah, the, that, that's good, yeah. The, um, if you look at uh, the parable of the, the wise and foolish virgins, you have they all fell asleep, but uh, you know some of them were prepared for Christ to return, and some were not. Uh, but the bottom line here is that yeah, we don't want to be caught asleep uh, and un- you know unaware of Christ's return, but rather staying awake. And Jesus used that language all over the place, actually, of staying awake, for you don't know the hour that He will come. Uh, and to stay awake means to be alert and uh, to um, uh, to to continue to. Uh, stay firm in your faith and to continue to nourish your faith, to seek the gifts that he gives uh, through the Holy Spirit, um, find ourselves in the means of grace, for example, uh, that will deliver us uh, forgiveness, life, and salvation, that will keep us in the one true faith. Hmm. So into verse 3 then, Jesus, having told the congregation to wake up, to strengthen what remains, to complete the works— the command at the beginning of verse 3 is to remember what you've received and heard. Talk about the importance of remembering what's been received. Well, again, it's not like these people have never heard the gospel before. It's it's not that they are—we're not, we're not dealing with non-Christians here. Uh, we're dealing with people who have heard the Word, who don't really have an excuse for being separated from it at all. They can't claim they've never heard it before. Uh, you know, and— St. Paul has numerous admonitions throughout his, his epistles to, for people to return to uh, the Word or to flee from false teachers who would take them away from the true gospel and so forth. So the thing is here, you have heard the Word of God before. Uh, you need to return to that. That's the place where uh, you need to find the assurance of your salvation, the assurance of what God has done for you. Um, rather than to, again, looking to your empty works, uh, but rather return and remember the message that first brought you into the faith. Hmm. So come, go back to the basics. Go back to the Word of God. Remember what has been preached to you, what you first believed, so that you would be alive. Keep it. Repent. Hold on to that truth. Repent. Turn around from, from your empty works. Come back to the truth of the gospel. Uh, talk about the warning then that Jesus gives. We referenced this a little bit earlier. If you won't wake up, what will happen? Yeah, if you don't wake up, then uh, he's going to come like a thief, uh, and you don't know what hour that is. And if he comes like a thief, um, and you're not ready for him, then time is up. It's not like there's this uh, this second chance all of a sudden that uh, you get to turn again. You know the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Uh, you know. What happens to the foolish virgins? Well, they decide, 
okay, well, I guess we need, need to go get oil for our lamps. But by the time they come back, the door is shut. Uh, there's no time left. Um, and, you know, the haunting answer comes from the other side of the door from the bridegroom. Uh, I never knew you, you know. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that's the warning there is that you'd be found outside of salvation if you're not found awake. Talk about the urgency of, of this letter, of, of this message as a whole. I mean, we've been talking about the end times discourse of Jesus and his language of staying awake, keeping awake, waking up now. Talk about the urgency that's inherent within this call to repent. Well, I think probably that urgency is probably, it needs to be repeated now more than ever, because even then you already had people that were probably wondering, well, is Jesus actually going to come back? Uh, and thinking that, well, it's, it's already been a few years, I guess, so much for that. Uh, but now we're, you know, a couple thousand years removed, and we can easily become complacent to that and think, well, he still hasn't come back. What are the odds that he's going to come back today? Well, mm. but we don't need to worry about that, you know. Uh, but the fact is that, that we do not know the day or the hour of Christ's return. Nobody knows it, not even the Son, um, but, uh, but only the Father knows uh, and it's not like God is waiting around for some catastrophic world event to happen all of a sudden that would allow Christ to return. Uh, it could come at any moment, at any t- uh, at it, on any day. Uh, and we need to live in such a way that we're ready for that. Uh, and so that means that, well, we shouldn't just kind of become lax and say, well, uh, you know, I'll take care of this or that issue I have. I know that I need to repent of this or that thing. I know that my, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm guilty of, of this or that, um, uh, of having empty works, of being dead, as, you know, to use the language from this particular section of Revelation. And I'll take care of that another day because I've got plenty of time to deal with it. Well, no, you don't. It needs to be taken care of now because Christ might return now. Uh, and and we need to repent now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, over and over again in the scriptures, the day of salvation is today. Paul even mm-hmm. says that, and I think it's in Second Corinthians where he speaks that way. the 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 urgency of of repentance is in the fact that Christ returns soon, and it's also urgent in the sense that He comes now. I mean, that that's when He comes to you. Today in the city of David is born for you a Savior. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says. And so it's it's not only a matter of the law, but it is also a matter of the gospel. That that why repent today? Because today is the day that Christ comes to forgive you. So so rejoice to receive that today. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So the the urgency of repentance is certainly inherent within this letter, and we will see that continue throughout the book of Revelation, particularly as we get toward the end of the book. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now, as as Jesus continues to write this letter to the church in Sardis in verse four, he does give some commendation, as we said. As a whole, this letter is the harshest so far, but there is some commendation in verse 4. What does Jesus say in verse 4, commending at least some there in the church in Sardis? Well, he says there's some whose faith is still alive. There's some who, if the end were to come today, they will walk with Jesus. Their, their, um, their garments have not been polluted. This idea of the white garments is throughout the book of Revelation as well. We have the the saints triumphant. We run into this, you know, around the uh, um, uh, the end of the church year each year, where we have this discussion of the end times, uh, and as we move into Advent too, for that matter. But uh, you know, who are the? How do you denote um, those who are saved? Well, they're the ones that are that are clothed in white garments. 
They're the ones who have been baptized, who have made, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Um, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, him, him, verse, him stands has come to mind. Uh, Behold a host arrayed in white, right? You know, all this kind of stuff. Um, so we have some who have not soiled their garments, uh, that is, that still cling to their baptism, that still hold fast to their faith, uh, and their faith will not be taken from them. Um, you know, which I, you know, is reminiscent of what we find in Romans chapter 8, where Jesus says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Um, and so we have those, those very distinct promises that are given to those who have remained firm in their faith. Talk about this image that is used in the book of Revelation, and it's also in Paul's epistles as well, of, of clothing when it comes to baptism, and not only in the, the being clothed part, but the, the clothes that we would wear otherwise, or to use the language here, the, the polluted garments. Uh, talk about some of those, those references, that language of baptism, and what that teaches us about the importance of baptism, what it does, this idea of, of what we were wearing and what we now wear baptized into Christ. Okay. Yeah, and I think there's a beautiful there's beautiful imagery just in our baptismal rite, honestly, of uh, you know the giving of a white garment. Um, I did I did not do this with my children because I discovered it too late, honestly. Uh, but I I do know of at least one friend of mine who's a pastor who his children when they were presented for baptism were actually uh, dressed in black. Um, and they were brought to the baptismal font wearing black, and they were actually given a white garment that went over the top of that black. And this might be an ancient practice that I just don't know enough about in church history, that that's, that's something that was done for a long time. But I thought it was just beautiful imagery, um, you know, to show that, hey, this in baptism now you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You're, not, you're no longer trying to present yourself as holy and righteous uh, based on you and what you're doing, but rather on Christ and what Christ has done for you and is now being given to you in these things. Um, same thing, you know, Jesus uses this whenever we're, we're talking about his, um, uh, the parable of the, the wedding feast. I know there's a lot of wedding feast parables that Jesus tells, but the one in particular where uh, you have the, uh, the guests who are invited and they come across one guest who's not wearing his wedding garment He's trying to get it in based on what he's wearing, what he's done, rather than wearing the garment that's been given to him, because it was the practice of that era to um, uh, to actually provide garments for the guests. And he tried to get in on his own terms, basically. Uh, and so uh, I think that's how I would look at this whole Church of Sardis thing, too, is that uh, the, the deal is here that the, the people of the Church of Sardis are trying to get into the kingdom of God on their own terms rather than the terms that God gives them. And the fact is that God has done all things for them. It's not like they, they need to um, achieve this on their own. All things have been done for them. When Christ said it's finished on the cross, it was finished. And now that completeness of his salvation has been gifted to them. It's not like they actually have to do anything, but, but they're trying to crawl in on their own terms rather than wearing the garments that have been given to them. Right, and and the garments that have been given are always the best garments. The garments of Christ's yeah. righteousness are better than any righteousness we would have. You know what? You, I appreciate you bringing up that the tradition of of you know what you bring your child to, or you know however you are dressed when you're baptized. 
And whatever you're wearing when you're baptized, that's fine. You know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I, so, yeah. No, your baptism was still valid. That's I hope right. Nobody heard, I hope nobody heard that. In no, the that's, wrong way. That's, yeah. that's right. <laughs> yeah. But I. So the the I've seen this practice, and you mentioned the baptismal liturgy, where within the the baptismal baptismal liturgy, there is a, a moment where a white garment can be given after the baptism, and kind of like most churches, I think, use the candle. I've seen less churches that use the the white garment, but I have been at a church that did use the white garment, and it was always. It was especially striking when it was an adult, because an adult would receive like a white vest, essentially, to put on for this moment. And generally, you know, the adults who were baptized came wearing their Sunday best, and here's this white vest that they put over, and it, it kind of looks a little awkward from a human perspective. But I, I think it's a really good image of what we're talking about here, that you know, we, we dress ourselves up as best we can, but the righteousness that really counts, which might not look like much in the world sight— the righteousness that really counts is the righteousness of Christ that covers us in baptism. So that even if it, you know, maybe it looked a little awkward for the adult to put on that that white vest, the righteousness that that person received in baptism was the best righteousness that they could have, the only one that counts on the last day. And I think that's, a, I mean, just seeing, having that image in my own mind is a reminder of what these white garments truly are. Whatever we would bring to the table won't avail but what God gives to us in holy baptism, those garments that he puts upon us, that counts for everything, and that's what we, we need to be wearing on the last day to be found in Christ. Yeah, and again, that gets back to the um, uh, the empty works, you know, the empty shell that the people of Sardis are that, uh, you know, again, they're... They're inside, you know, that, that shell, that, that outward motion, the outward works that they're doing, those are not the things that are going to count for anything, yeah. So the, the one who conquers, then, is one who is clothed thus in white garments, and we've talked about the one who conquers in previous letters. This is the one who trusts in the conquering hero, Christ, the crucified and risen one. He is clothed in those white garments, this one who conquers, and Jesus also promises never to blot out his name from the book of life. This is something we will see elsewhere in the book of Revelation, and it shows up other places in Scripture. Talk about what it means to have your name written in the book of life. Well, it's a good thing to have your name written in the book of life. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, that's that's the book you want to be your your name. You want your name to be in that book, right? Uh, no, this this is uh, this is as you said, used throughout the book of Revelation to denote. Uh, one who is saved, uh, one who has been sealed for salvation, if you will. Um, and, you know, I think that this is, this again, to get back to baptismal imagery and so forth, whenever we, um, uh, in the baptismal liturgy, we, we make the sign of the cross on the forehead, on the heart of the one being baptized to mark them as ones redeemed by Christ the crucified. Uh, you know, obviously that, that's just the ceremony that leads up to baptism but it is a it is a very uh, visual reminder or physical reminder, I guess I should say, a physical reminder of the fact that your name is being written in the book of life. Uh, it and, and it can't be blotted out from that. You can't undo baptism. Um, and you know we have that reminder throughout our lives. You know we have this reminder in the liturgy of the church always that this is an appropriate time to make the sign of the cross. Why? To remember your baptism. You know, remember that you have been. Your name is written in that book of life. Um, we use it uh, as pastors when we visit um, those who are, are sick or in the hospital, and you can use the anointing of oil using that same motion, you know, the, the sign of the cross on the forehead. 
uh, to remind them again that their name is written in the book of life. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a sign that uh, you have been uh, sealed for salvation by Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I've always thought of this at least a little bit when after a baptism, I write down the name of the baptized in the church register. You know, I mean, and and certainly we can take that the wrong way, and we can we can reject the gift that is given to baptism. But as you said, baptism, it's, it's not, it never fails from God's perspective, right? He, he keeps the promise that he made in baptism. And so to have your name written in the, the church register, again, can be misused, mm-hmm. but to have your name written there, that is a reminder that there is a heavenly writing in the book of life that has happened. You are enrolled in heaven. According to your baptism, Christ writes you in that book, and that is a promise that won't be taken away. Right. Yeah. So so your name is written in the book of life. And again, that belongs to the one who conquers, the one who trusts in Christ, who has conquered sin, death, and gra- and the devil for us. Jesus also promises to the one who conquers in this letter that he will confess that person's name before his Father and his angels. Talk about this promise. Yeah, to confess uh, his name before the Father... Uh, you know, in a, or to confess your name before the Father. You want Jesus to confess your name before the Father, obviously, just like you want your name in the Book of Life. Um, to confess, um, uh, you know, how else does Jesus? I don't remember where it was, and I was trying to look it up for today, and I should I should know where it is. Where Jesus says, um, uh, "He who uh, confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven." Uh, and he who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. And I, and I, I, I just quite frankly could not remember. It. I, I was pressed for time, quite it's frankly. But I was in. It's in Matthew ten, and it may ah, be in the yeah. other Gospels too. But Matthew ten thirty two and thirty three. Whoever acknowledge me, acknowledges me or confesses me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies right. me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Yeah, yeah. So, to, but to have Jesus confess your name before God in heaven is to have Him as your Savior, and for Him to say, "This is one that uh, that that has faith in Me, uh, and His sins I have covered." Uh, and so, we obviously, you know, that's that's what we want. We want Jesus to confess us uh, before have before His His Father in heaven, uh, and um, uh, yeah. <laughs> As you know, that that thought of Jesus confessing us before His Father in heaven, we've been reading from the Apostle John for quite a while here on Sharper Iron. We recently read First John, and First John chapter two, John says, "If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous." Which I think you know that is that that is part of what Jesus is doing, confessing us before His Father. That this is one that my blood has covered, that my blood has forgiven, dear Father in heaven. And if Jesus is confessing us before his Father, I mean, who who better to have us, or who better for us to have confessing before the Father than the very Son of God by nature, Jesus Christ himself? This is a wonderful promise to us as Christians to know that when we trust in Christ, that means that he is confessing us before the Father. His blood is covering us it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that we're sinless, like, oh, Father, this one is worthy to be your child. No, this one is one whom I've forgiven, and so is your child. That's the confession that's happening. Yeah, and, that, and that's a beautiful thought as we approach Ascension Day, too, uh, you know, as Jesus at the right hand of the Father has uh, has his Father's ear, uh, and he 
he remembers us before the before his father. Yeah, yeah, this is a wonderful, wonderful promise. Again, to the one who conquers. Then this letter concludes as the previous one, and this phrase has been in all the letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is? Why does that phrase keep getting repeated? What's the importance of that phrase? Well, I think it's. I think more than anything, it's probably just simply a call to attention. Hey, listen to what I just said. It's important. Don't, you know, uh, pay attention to this, um, and uh, you know, don't don't ignore what I've just said. Jesus used a similar thing when he closed off his parables. Uh, I think it was the parable of the sower ends that way. He he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right. Uh, so, you know, listen to what the Word of God says, actually pay attention to it, and in particular, pay attention to what I just said here in this letter. You need to hear this Word. You need to continue to hear this Word. Got about a minute left here, Pastor Vandercook. As we wrap up, what is the what is the message that the Church today needs to hear? The good news, the law, the gospel, both. What do we need to hear from this letter to the Church in Sardis? Well, I think, first of all, the fact is that, uh, you know, you look at, you look at the fact that uh, God, through the Holy Spirit, has called, gathered, and enlightened, and sanctified us. He has made us part of his church. Um, and so because we've been made part of that church, uh, that means that things that things like our salvation, these things are not things that can be taken away from us. Uh, however, there is a word of caution here as well that we need to not just perform empty works, thinking that somehow we're going to appease God uh, based upon what we have done, but rather that uh, we need to remain uh, remain faithful to God's word, continue to seek to hear what he's done for us uh, through his word, to receive the gifts that he gives to us in the sacraments, stay connected to all of these things that he gives through his holy church, uh, that our works would not be empty works, but they would be complete works that are completed by, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit uh, working through us. Pastor David Vandercook is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. He has been helping us today to study Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today. It's my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the letter to Sardis, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.